Welcome back to Anyone Can Play Guitar, the podcast where we learn every Radiohead song on the guitar in order. My name is Austin Diaz. And I'm Nick Kendallsberger. How are you feeling these days, Austin? I am tired. <laughs> Between the recording of the first season and this season, we had our second uh, child, and he does not like sleep so much. Uh, Okay, he's not so into it right now. No. So we're going to be very nerdy on this first episode of the second season, and we're going to spend the entire time talking about one song, Paranoid Android. So this was the first single from uh, OK Computer, and we have a lot to say about it. This is the song that really got me into Radiohead. I was watching MTV as a young kid, and this came on, and I was like, what on earth is going on here? Yeah. Interesting. I have the exact same experience. When I think back on it, it's really sort of amazing that this video was on such heavy rotation on MTV at that point. Right, because it's a a cartoon. Yeah. And it's a very weird video. I've been watching it a lot this week because I'm trying to catch all the things that are in it. It's really funny, actually. (laughs) Which I'm going to bring up a number of times in this conversation about Paranoid Android. And I just think that it is sort of irreverent and kind of doesn't take itself too seriously. Yeah. But yeah, no, I remember I went to Louisville to buy OK Computer on CD based off this one song. Where? It was definitely Ear Ecstasy. Yeah, that's... I mean, it's really a bit weird because it's exactly where I bought it. I remember before I bought the CD, because it was on such heavy rotation on MTV, I would just keep MTV going all morning. If I had like a morning where I was just around the house... And sort of by myself, I would mute it if it wasn't that song. And then I would like turn the sound back on when that video came back on and I would just watch it again. I mean, because it was really like the first Radiohead song that I remember hearing. When I go back in my memory, I realized that I'd heard High and Dry before. I, as we've mm-hmm. discussed, did not hear Creep in the Wild. Oh, right. That's weird. So, yeah, Paranoid Android was it. And I loved it. And I remember that I, you know, I had like a girlfriend at the time, but it was one of those girlfriends where you just talk on the phone and that was it. I was terrible with those relationships. I was awful at them. I would just sit there. (laughs) But I remember saying like, oh, isn't that new Radiohead song awesome? And she said, you mean the cartoon? Like, that's really weird. (laughs) And I realized, oh, like not everyone likes everything that's on MTV. I definitely remember that this was not a big hit with people on the baseball team. They definitely thought it was weird, even at the time. And I kind of liked that about it, maybe. It was sort of the beginning of my development of some sort of unique taste. And not not just like sort of digesting whatever, you know, the radio and like popular culture was like sort of trying to shove at you with commercialization and stuff at the time. But I was like, nope, I like this. And whatever this is, I want more of it and not whatever like boy band stuff is starting to come out. Oh, yeah. People don't remember the late 90s, man. That was tough. Some great music, but you had to wade through stuff to get to it. Well, I just, I realized looking back now how much I was influenced by what was going on in England. I think I've, I've made some casual references to Britpop, mm-hmm. but like, man, I loved that stuff. <laughs> like, uh, I love Oasis and I love Blur and I love Pulp. But I was also getting into Bjork at the time because mm-hmm. um, she had some amazing videos too. So that blew my mind. I'm re- I was really into spiritualized in high school too. Uh, I mean, that's we do have a divergence there. I didn't really get into Britpop. I mean, I sort of liked Oasis. I mean, outside of Radiohead, 
I mean, what I was listening to at the time was more the like harder rock stuff, like Incubus before their commercial album or the Deftones, mm. Pantera. See, this is very different than me. Yeah. See, you got you're sort of into metal territory, you, you, aren't you? You don't have to say sort of. See, that was a hard line in the sand for me. I never got into metal. Oh, I got into like metal, hardcore. It was a bit of the Christian straight edge scene too. There's probably a problematic sort of connection between the two of them if I were to go back to it, but it wasn't problematic for me at the time. Right. Well, you were into Tool, right? Yeah, Tool. Oh, I listen to Tool all the time. Tool, Nine Inch Nails. See, yeah, that was not me at all. I, uh, for some reason, I love the Smashing Pumpkins and they have some metal influences, but man, I really can't do it. For I some only reason. listen to the metal influenced Smashing Pumpkin songs. Oh, right. Like, yeah. Almost exclusively. <laughs> Okay, what I think yeah. is interesting is that this song attracted both of us from these two different spectrums of music mm-hmm. because it has both of those things. Metal, I like because of like the aggressive kinetic energy of it. When I say I don't love metal, I have come to appreciate it because there is so much going on there. Mm-hmm. Paranoid Android is very complex. Yeah. And there's all these little parts. It's even further beyond whatever we've discussed so far that they've done. I've gone down so many different rabbit holes at different times trying to break down like what is salient about this song, and this is why it might take a long time to... Yes, no, this is going to take so long. What's really important is we need to define what this is, because so much has been written about it that I don't think is true, or that is only partly true. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of rock songs that are long, and there's a lot of rock songs that have lots of little parts that are different. Just saying that this is like a Bohemian Rhapsody of the 90s sort of sounds true, but I I really don't think that it's like that song at all. I want to look back at what they said about it. So here's one quote. Tom said it was written in three different sections at different times in different states of mind and then put together. Our working model for it was happiness as a warm gun. She's not a So Happiness of a Warm Gun is obviously a Beatles song on the White Album. Right. And I think that this is the number one place to look to see how this was put together. None of the parts were conceived of working together, that they just had these three different sections and then were like, oh yeah, let's try it together. And for some insane reason, it all works. Happiness of a Warm Gun, I think, is actually a much darker song. It's a very bizarre song, mm-hmm. um, and it's all linen. I mean, how they put it together is obviously the full band, but it's a fever dream of a song. And he just seems to be totally obsessed, um, romantically and sexually obsessed with Yoko Ono at the time, in a way that Paranoid Android isn't quite as dark. It has some very sad moments, but it doesn't seem to be as revealing, I guess, as happiness as a warm gun 
Yeah, I mean, if you listen to them back to back, which I did a couple times, you definitely see it, especially the patterning. Like you could almost lay them on top of each other. It's interesting about Happiness is a Warm Gun too, which relates to Paranoid Android, is that the, t- the time signatures, they change almost every 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And so the complexity of stitching those parts together is a lot harder than you think it would be. And so I think that is a much different thing than Bohemian Rhapsody, which was sort of conceived as this epic. Right, like an opera. Yeah, like, uh, which is, a, it, it's an awesome song. I'm not saying anything bad about that song. I'm not the biggest Queen fan, but like, that's a great song. I like it only okay. And so like the Beatles did this also on uh, You Never Give Me Your Money, the start of the Abbey Road suite on the second side. Ah, oh, that's a good song. But so Paranoid Android even repeats one of the sections again. So it's not even, if we want to get technical about it, it's not strictly a through composed piece because they bring up that riff again in the coda. Right. In that early version that you sent me, they bring back a different part. So the early live version, when they were playing this crazy song for Alanis Morissette fans, Mm -hmm. instead of ending with the really loud riff again, they go... (laughs) into what is essentially the chorus. Right. Um, I mean, it's just that the, like a... And just like forever. Forever. And then Johnny does this wild organ solo. Yeah. Where it goes... Yeah. And <laughs> he's like scales. Just, like, I mean, he's just lost in it. In it. He's yeah. having so much fun. I mean, I'm glad that the new version has the guitar solo because as I will talk mm-hmm. about, I love this solo. But mm-hmm. I mean, he is in heaven. But it's almost a bit jam bandy, that version. Yeah, I'll give you that. It's less of a solo and more of a like, let's just have some fun here yeah. and see what kind of noise we can make. Yeah. How do you feel about this first part? It feels like the song starts in the middle somewhere. It's like you're stumbling onto a song that has already been going for a while. So it has this amazing percussion that makes it not a folk song. Like when you listen to some early versions, it's just Tom playing it, and you can tell that it was sort of conceived as a an acoustic-y ballad. But this really gives it some life. And that's something I don't have any idea how that works. The rhythm and the shakers and the clave and the, like all these no, things. No, I mean, the percussion is just fantastic. And I need to apologize to anyone who I played this song for when I was younger, because I definitely told people that I knew how to play Paranoid Android, and I had no idea. Oh, I never, I never learned. I mean, this is just now. I mean, I've been, you know, this is the first album that I have from Radiohead. I'm just now learning any of these songs. The only song that I knew beforehand was Karma Police because you showed it to me once and then we played it live a lot. And I was like, okay, I guess I know that song now. I didn't want to learn any of these songs. Huh. Why is that? I loved this album so much. I particularly loved this song so much. I almost didn't want to know how it worked. It seems so sort of otherworldly, like the whole album. 
yeah, I didn't want to kind of like break the mystery of it. This is the first time I've tried to learn this song. See, I, when I was younger, I would do the... Like that, and I'd be like, I know Paranoid Android. I'm sure everyone looked at me like I was insane. Yeah, they're like, that doesn't know what that sounds like. Because it's a very intricate picking pattern, when I finally cracked the code to kind of make this work, I realized that it's basically an up-down sort of picking, like down, up, down, up, down, up. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But the exact moment I knew that things were getting weird was this part, the... You hit the A string open, and then it just keeps going down. (laughs) It has this downward progression that is, it seems almost comical. I think it's interesting that you point out that the uh, A string is open because that's what makes it really weird. The, the song is in C Dorian, which is almost C minor, except that it has that natural A instead of the flat A. In that picking pattern, when you really hit that open A, like you're emphasizing that it's in Dorian and the Dorian's is sort of, sort of unstable mm-hmm. mode um, because it's almost minor, but it's not quite minor. And then when you, when you go down, you have that open A again, and then you go to the B flat, which you had before, and you'd think that you would go to the C again, mm-hmm. which is the key that it's in. You'd think you'd be like... But they don't do that. They go to the E minor. Yeah. Which is not, which is out of key, because it should be an E flat. Oh, even in Dorian. Even in Dorian, it should be an E flat. And then when they, but when they go from that E minor to the A voicing more, mm-hmm. it's like pulling it towards this um, mixolydian C, huh? Which is more major, but because you have like this modal shift, it throws you off even more because mixolydian is also not as stable. It's just like a natural major, so that's why it's so unsettling. It's because it's modulating between these two sort of unstable modes. And then what he sings. It just blows my mind. When I came back to it, after analyzing all the Ben songs and all the Pablo Honey songs, I didn't mm-hmm. know quite what to expect. And then you put on Paranoid Android and you're just like, oh no, like yeah. it's, it's getting out of hand. The voice comes in and instead of doing like a melody, he basically just keeps going up the scale mm-hmm. and then goes down. But at first it just keeps going higher and higher and higher and higher. <laughs> Right, but that's what grabs you. you. Said it well, like when the song starts, it's like this in medias race, like okay, what what's happening? Where is this song going? Mm-hmm. And then he comes and he just doesn't stop going up, and you're like, oh, what is this? Is weird because it's yeah. like also uh, in contrast to the bass notes of the guitar going down. The notes are going down, and it's almost like his voice is fighting against the downward trajectory of the music. But then he also, like, gives up. Then you get to essentially what is the what's that section, which is as much of a chorus as there is in this song. You don't really, you never know what's going to come next, even in the very beginning. You have that other guitar part that's augmenting and then throwing you off. Why that sounds so weird. That E flat. So that's the note that you're supposed to have with the starting tone. But they've pulled the song so far out of it 
that when like Johnny plays that and he pulls it back like that and he plays it right before it starts over at the C so it pulls it back but it sounds so weird even though it's actually the right note and so they it's just how they how they play with modes and keys and stuff that the most strange sounding note is the one that fits <laughs> just very interesting. I think we should also mention that the name comes from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Have you read this book? I have. Okay. Yeah, sure. I read it last week. I realized I hadn't read it and I was like, oh, I should probably read that. Oh, Nick, um, yeah, good. <laughs> it's sort of based on this robot called Marvin. He's sort of like a servant robot, but he's so smart and he gets so frustrated with humans because they just make him do menial tasks. And he's like, I have a brain as big as a planet, and you're like asking me to go fetch somebody, which is hilarious. I wish the book had a lot more Marvin the robot. <laughs> yeah, but he really, yeah, he's really a quite of a minor character. I think it's a great way to look at this song lyrically because I, I don't know. I sent you a lot of videos about analysis of this song, and I think people were taking it way too seriously. People were trying to make it out to be this like grand statement. Every time they talk about this song, they're like, this is a laugh. <laughs> I mean, but I think Radiohead suffers from that in general, is people taking them far too seriously and not wanting to think that they have a sense of humor. I mean, we've had this before in discussions of other songs, like anyone can play guitar. I think they have a sense of humor. They're having fun. And I think because the music is so good and his voice is just so, as he puts it, annoyingly beautiful. <laughs> <It is. laughs> because his voice is so pretty you take it serious what he's doing especially yeah. with a vocal melody like he's singing it at yeah but I mean so you have this quote from Collins we'd listen to it and we'd just giggle we felt like irresponsible schoolboys who were doing this naughty thing because nobody does a six and a half minute song with all these changes it's ridiculous and then it reminded me again of the Beatles I think there's just a huge Beatles influence on OK Computer and this song especially where the Beatles at one point decided to start writing comedy songs you'll hear this in the Revolution in the Head which we've mentioned before by Ian McDonald around Rubber Soul, Paul McCartney was basically just like, yeah, we're writing comedy songs now. So like Drive My Car, even Eleanor Rigby. And these are songs about people they don't know. They're just making them up, writing these sort of funny songs. When you get a line like, when I am king, you will be first against the wall. I don't think that Tom York is like, I'm going to destroy you. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I think the key is in like the next line, like with your opinion, which is of no consequence at all. I mean, it's more about like, I don't want to hear you talk anymore. Because <laughs> the song starts with the, please, will you stop the noise? I'm trying to get some rest. I mean, unborn chicken voices in my head, like one scary, but two funny. Because it kind of recalls that one line from Street Spirit. Yeah. No, I mean, Street Spirit, I think, is legitimately frightening. And he's admitted to that. I mean, like, York has said that's terrifyingly like looking the devil in the face song. But this one named after a paranoid robot. <laughs> who is there for comedy? I mean, like there to... as the comic character. And, you know, like there's obviously some things you can laugh about. And then it's also they tell us something that's very true. Even when we get all this amazing technology, we still find ways to like feel sad and paranoid. I mean, I do think that's true. Um, okay, we got to keep moving along because yeah, this, this is why it's get... cool. 
So after we get through the what's that part, which is really beautiful, all of a sudden the song, all the rhythm tracks slowly fade away and you get this riff. Which, I mean, my God, how do you come up with a riff like that? <laughs> and then to bury it <laughs> like two minutes into the song, it's just outrageous. They just play four bars of it to sort of transition to the other part, like... And you're like, wait, what, what happened to the other part? Just keep playing that riff. <laughs> I will say, if you slow that riff down, that's pretty metal. Oh, I know. Think that's what I'm talking then. about. That's what I said at the beginning. Sort of a Black Sabbath. Uh, right, because it has that, like, it has that sort of, that G sharp. Mm -hmm. If it's in A minor, it should be this. But that um, the G sharp, like, throws it off. It sort of, like, gives it a bit more darker, more metal. And I love it. And the lyrics here are my favorite in the whole song. The ambition makes you look very ugly. Kicking, squealing, coochie little piggy. So apparently that was uh, inspired by when he was at a bar one time. One of his friends, they spilled something on this woman and then she got so angry at him. He'd never seen someone look like the devil before. I mean, he was in L.A. I don't know what he was expecting. Right, in L.A. I mean, I see that. I, I go out to some very fancy restaurants in Chicago and it is amazing the first time you see it, the upper class they expect to be treated differently. It's a it's a very real thing. And he goes, you don't remember, you don't remember, why don't you remember my name? Which is the other character saying that, which I've seen too. I mean, like I did temp jobs when I lived in New York where I was a secretary and someone asked me to like make a reservation at a restaurant that had no reservations left because it was very popular. And they're like, tell them it's me and tell them it's my name and they'll give it to you. I mean, this stuff happens. Which is, it just, it's, Frightening to me that it happens. That's more frightening than anything in this song. Okay. <laughs> but I think he's taking the piss out of it. I think he's saying, like, these people are just, you know, Gucci little piggies. Like, they're just making a lot of noise. And people, because they have money, people take them seriously. Or, or at least can't kick them out. But yeah, I mean, it's a really vicious, the way he says it, too, is so yeah. angry. The way that he's singing changes, right? I mean, you have this part... And the, just his voice, I mean, it still sounds like him, but the way, the manner of singing is completely changed from the first part. And in general, I've read somewhere that he challenged himself to sing differently on every song on this album. We talked a lot about how impressive his singing was on Pablo Honey, and it's very different on OK Computer. He doesn't yeah. go for it, the Bono-isms. <laughs> he doesn't go for these acrobatic things. He's singing very calmly a lot of the time. I mean, I think he's trying to get away from that Bono-esque wailing, like, I have a really pretty voice and let me show you how nice it is. I think mm -hmm. he's sort of, you see that he's already tired of his voice. So right now we have a very special guest. This is Eric Evans. He's an extremely talented bassist and he's gonna kind of help us break down what Colin is doing in this section. How do we know each other? 
Uh, we grew up together. We uh, we were next door neighbors from infancy. My mom That's used true. to babysit you. Went to high school mm-hmm. together, elementary school. Used to play in a band together. What was the name of our band? It was. Uh, it had many names, but I think we settled on Toast. Yeah, I think we were cheesy beef sticks for a little bit, but that didn't last. Yeah, six million children are overweight or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that one. What was your introduction to Radiohead? Uh, you were my introduction to Radiohead. So I forced it upon you. Paranoid Android had just come out. And I remember back when MTV used to play music videos, we would occasionally watch MTV. And I think you maybe caught wind of it first and then introduced me to it as like, hey, you need to check out this thing. And that really kind of blew my mind because that was like really just when I was starting to get into music on my own as well. I mean, OK Computer was like one of the first albums that was just like, this is this is what I like. And to an extent, like this is what I want to do. Like it really kind of influenced my desire to like be a musician. So you're like actually a musician. Yeah. So I've, I've got a project called Hinterfolk. And you have like a recording studio in your house. I do. It's an addiction that there is no cure for. Yeah, so. no. <laughs> Let's just get right into the song. Is there anything you have to say about the first part? It grabs me right away. Just sort of the the intricacy between all of the different parts. It's sort of like the culmination of the Radiohead sound to me. Everybody plays their own role and there's like a lot of counterpoint and a lot of like interweaving of what each member of the band is doing. Is something where you kind of hear something different every time that you listen to it. I'm still catching different things, like down to the production value of the types of reverbs that they use and like space echoes and how they use them almost as just separate instruments by themselves. The... It's just sort of droning for a lot of it and like laying laying like a really great foundation and sort of locking in with with the drums and creating this bed for the really kind of intricate guitar parts to to play over. Because like Colin's not you wouldn't call him a flashy bassist, would you? Uh, no, I wouldn't, but I would call him a really interesting bass player. He definitely has the ability to be a little virtuosic, as he shows sort of during the riff section of the song. You know, starting with the bends, definitely an OK computer, and then going forward, like, he can be pretty minimal in his playing, but he is choosing the right thing to play to really elevate the song, whether it needs just, like, a foundation or if it needs a counterpoint, like an airbag. I think he plays three notes. <laughs> But his his sense of rhythm and like the syncopation that he creates in it is really just sort of like takes the song to the next level for me. I, I don't know. Like I liken it to mo- like going to college for music composition. I had to do like a lot of ensemble work and probably like the single most important thing that I walked away from was like listening louder than you play. I feel like they all do that. They're all kind of aware of like how they fit in. OK, so what's going on in this second movement? So it starts off the... And then they play it, but they only play it like a couple times. And then Colin just goes wild. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like. He kind of shows you he's capable of like being a little virtuosic and like playing a a little bit outside the box because his note choices are interesting and like kind of weird on it. Like he's got that whole, the overall shape of what he's doing is really like just a pentatonic, minor pentatonic. Mm -hmm. But then he's, he's filling in every possible note within that shape. So it kind of becomes this chromatic pentatonic shape. 
Yeah, like a chromaticized version of it or a chromaticized version of a blues scale. I just hadn't paid that much attention to the bass part beyond the riff. And then, like you were saying, sometimes you, you hear things after the hundredth time you've heard the song. <laughs> and I just, I was amazed at how, at what the bass was doing. And honestly, like, I didn't learn this song for a long time because that part intimidated me. Because I, okay. I, I didn't, I just didn't have the, like, I had the chops to play it pretty early on, but like, I didn't have the ear to understand like kind of the complicated harmony that he was doing there. So I just sort of was like, that's awesome. I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that, I mean, what's interesting is that it sounds so like that. He returns to that at the very outro, the same chord changes are going on underneath it but he takes mm -hmm. it down an octave. Oh. And I, I think he might line up the rhythm a bit more with the guitars, but it sounds completely different, but it just, it adds this sort of heavy sort of groove pocket to it. It's basically the same notes, but the, the feel of it is so different and so sort of locked in with everything instead of dancing around it. So this is one of your favorite bass parts by Colin. Yeah, this is definitely one of my favorite Colin bass parts. I would also say one of my favorite just bass parts in general of anyone. Mm -hmm. Like including, you know, some really flashy like Jaco Pistorius things. Like this is this is up there with with that for me, for everything. And this song is like the perfect example of, of how they really are like a group of composers working together instead of like just a band. Thank you so much, Eric. That was amazing. And now it's time to move on to the solo. Austin, what do you have to say? This is the only solo that ever makes it on any sort of top 50 list. Hmm. Like Guitar World has this at number 34. There's a video of the guy that's sort of breaking it down, and he says, I don't really like solos that aren't technically challenging, because it's not technically challenging, the solo, but he said, this is my favorite non-technically challenging solo. You know, like the... You have that part, and then... Yeah. And then when it really starts, is you start like at the four, and then you go up... You know, so he's at the 20th fret, which is the C. <laughs> right and so you have like it works because that's in the key but what he does is he like plays it at such a insane tremolo it's the same effect as like when you say a word over and over and over and over and over again and the word starts stops making sense so it's almost like he wants to obliterate the key that the song is in like he wants to obliterate the C and like he like and then he, he goes up to the D like once, he like hits it and then back to the C again to obliterate it again. And then he goes through these bins like. Ugh, yeah. And the, both of the bins, he's really trying, it's almost like he's trying to bend those notes up to the C, like cause they're almost there. And then he, there's this sort of uh, literary term called defamiliarization. Take something that you know or like good literature or good art, like take something that is familiar and makes it strange. C is one, the most familiar key you could say. I mean, like you have middle C and that's, you start usually in songs in C. All, the whole song is almost sort of defamiliarizing C. And especially when you get to the solo and he's doing that. And then what he does again. is Then he's using chromaticism. Right. Like you have... 
He's moving up into the notes and then he just he refuses to stay in the key. He refuses to stay with anything that they've established tonally, but it's also so melodic. It can't not be a bit catchy. It can't not stick in your head. And usually with the guitar solo, it's setting you free. It feels triumphant. And this is the opposite. This just feels anxious. It's like right? anxiety inducing. Like this, yeah. like. I mean, you're just like, what is going on? <laughs> that See, that feels um, the most like the Pixies that I've, they, you know, they talk a lot about the Pixies, but they're sort of that part of it really does sound like that. Yeah. It's sort of like, like I got to shake it all off. So now we got to get to the choral section, I guess they call it. You know, I always knew this part was like the sad part, maybe. That's how I knew of it. And then when you break it down on guitar, I just, I kind of lost it. Like, this is one of those things that count the number of chords in this section. There's as many chords in this part of the song as there are on the entirety of like the first Ramones album. And that's not a knock against the Ramones. It's just like this thing, it's outrageous. There's 12 chords, I believe, right, in this section. Well, there might be 13. But so, you know, we spent a lot of time discussing Nice Dream and how wonderful that sort of middle part is. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned that it sounded sort of like Paranoid Android, and I didn't understand what you were saying at the time. I think I agreed with you, and I was just like, oh, whatever. But it, it, it totally is that sort of thing where you just get into this loop where it just keeps repeating. You get into a trance, and this one is even more enveloping than that. It keeps changing the foundation you're on. Continuing the uh, project of, I'm just going to stay with the defamiliarization, like defamiliarizing C. It's been in C Dorian, and then all of a sudden we have C minor, just like straight up. After we've had that like craziness with the C and the solo. You know, one book that we, I think you have this one too, by Brad Osborne, Everything in Its Right Place. Yeah. And I think what he says about this is amazing. He says, the two songs in Radiohead's catalog stand out as the most harmonically perplexing. The two sections in question are the verses of Knives Out and the hymn-like choral section in Paranoid Android. Shuttling back and forth between two keys over and over again gives the harmony-attentive listen something akin to seasickness. Yeah, it's almost like sinking more in the ocean. Okay. Like. <laughs> but I mean, it, it does start off in the, in the whole feel of the song changes and these voices appear. You know, I think there's three or four toms singing. Mm -hmm. And then there's a Moog synthesizer or a synthesizer part. And that really unhinges things where it sort of sounds like a choir, but then it sounds very dirty. It's a very low note. I found this dissertation that I was sort of like published online somewhere about this album. What they were talking about in the dissertation is that you think that this album is really futuristic. And it is. I mean, it's OK Computer and you have Paranoid Android. But the music isn't that futuristic. I mean, you have some uh, electronic drums and stuff. But it's actually still very guitar, voice mm -hmm. based with these little bitty elements 
that just throw you off. And that's why like your memory of the album is much more futuristic than the actual album is. And it's they pointed out a section like that uh, with this synthesizer sort of, yeah, pulling the, the blending of human and electronic voices. And so you're not sure which one is Tom and which one is the instrument. We'll hear this again on Exit Music because they do it exceptionally well there too. The line, the dust and the screaming, the yuppies networking still yeah. gives me shivers today. I can't, if anyone says, do you want to network? I just like, I can't handle it. I can't yeah, do it. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm not, I'm, I will never join LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> and I blame this, I blame that lyric. <laughs> you blame that lyric? But with if anyone says that to me with a straight face, I'm just like, well, obviously you're not a Radiohead fan because yeah. you would laugh at yourself if you yeah. said this out loud. But it is, this is the reason why people overanalyze Paranoid Android, I think, because this has such a important feeling maybe to it, which sounds insane to say. I think I've played that section, these chords just over and over again. This no, yeah, uh, my wife told me to stop. <laughs> she was like, play something else. <laughs> so then, in the beginning, it, it went back to the, we mentioned the... Which would, yeah. you know, is another somber sort of part. They cut that out, and so now we get back into the... And like with a vengeance, right? It's like... With a vengeance, yeah. Which are just like, when you come up with a riff that good, like you yeah. deserve to play it again. <laughs> right. And then, I mean, because then like Johnny's also playing it at a higher register. He's like... This part is also like, and it's just, it's so, it's not hard. I mean, it's hard to play it correctly, that it sounds exactly like him. To get exactly it to like sound him. exactly like him, yeah. You know, because then he's like, commentaries on this solo talk about like how aggressive and angry it is. I think it's just, again, f more frustrated, like reaching for something with a guitar that he can't get at. Like he yeah. wants to just sort of destroy these notes and the guitar is maybe the best one to do that so far. Then he, then he goes into like the most melodic part of the solo at the very end and ends with that. It's like. And then it's so catchy and he, but he just throws it in at the end and I'm like, no. Keep going, <laughs> like, you know. But it's 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 almost as like he starved you of he has, hasn't done that right. Like that's right. that is a normal guitar solo, and it's fun to play. But I was like, I've been practicing that so much because it's so nice to play, and it's just thrown in at the end. It's one of the best like guitar solo licks he's he ever plays in the whole that I can remember, mm -hmm. and it's just yeah. I'm gonna play that twice. Not gonna do it. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna. <laughs> Chromatic, chromaticize my way out of it and then we're done like yep and then it ends and then that's <laughs> it but then you're just like if you start the song back over you're like mm -hmm. these this these aren't even related <laughs> this is right if you like, had the song on repeat you're you would have thought you like oh it's going to the next song but i couldn't help but thinking when i started to learn this song i think this song is a dead end and I don't mean that as a knock against the song, but I think it is a dead end for them, which bears itself out later, because he's a really good... I mean, it's, the song is amazing, but it's not as though we haven't seen these ideas before. Everything that comes up in this song, from like the... The 
there's, you know, you have that pedal note, that reverse pedaling with the high note and then the bass line going around. I mean, like we've seen that with Trickster, like. Even going out of the key. And then you have really weird chromaticism we already had in my iron lung, right? Like, or he's like, you know, there's just weird chords coming out of nowhere. You know, it was sort of stitching different parts of the song together. Mm-hmm. You also had like, you know, this part is... It's called planing where they stick with major chords even though some of those chords should be minor and they have the same thing with that middle section of my iron long leg if like that's also planing because one of those chords should be minor the way that we're doing the podcast and having learned all the songs in order nothing in this song was surprising in terms of like what he was working with even this like the that great part right That change, you know, you have like everything's on the ground. Or, you know, like this part with the bass note just going down like that. Mm-hmm. You have that. That song looks like it has lots of chords in it, but it's just a bass line changing. I have this sort of theory, you know, that book, This Isn't Happening, from Stephen Hyden. Sort of starts out with, like, York going into that kind of catatonic breakdown at that show. And he sort of plays it in the book as, like, you know, about the fame and rock star lifestyle and stuff. But I think it has more to do with, they wrote this song and some of the other songs on as we'll get to an OK Computer, but this song specifically is sort of like the pinnacle of all of the songwriting techniques that York had been like perfecting over the years. And this song is a dead end because you can't get better than this. I think it kind of freaked him out. I think you're right. And I say that because while this is the song that got me into Radiohead, it quickly was not my even my favorite song on the album. No. And when I became a crazy Radiohead fan, which were officially insane Radiohead fans now, but it it were the other songs that really did it for me. And starting with OK Computer, then especially Kid A is when I dove all the way in. Right. Off the deep end. Off the deep end. (laughs) Because I think that it was as far as they could go into this one direction. Well, I think every band gets to this dead end at some point. And I think some bands turn around, like Radiohead or the Beatles, and they're like, okay, we're turning around, we're finding another road. And other bands just sort of like build a cul-de-sac. They're like, (laughs) each album is just like a new house at the end of this dead-end street. Oh, that's a really good way to put it. And they they have good careers, and then, but they're just not as relevant. Well, just think about how hard it must have been. Like, to understand what is going on in Paranoid Android, it just Mm -hmm. takes time. And then to be like, well, okay, let's go somewhere else. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I would have still been a Radiohead fan, but I don't know if we would be doing a podcast about them because we know what's coming. And we've always been knowing what's coming. And like, it's just interesting to kind of see it this closely. 
I hadn't thought about that. I'm really glad you brought that up because you never say like this song on in rainbows is the paranoid Android. You know, there's not a paranoid Android two. Okay. Well, so next week we're going to actually get into more than one song, at least three, <laughs> maybe four. <laughs> yes. Sorry. I think we should do then airbag, subterranean homesick alien and exit music three. Okay. I have a lot to say. I've, I, yeah, I have a lot to say about all three of those. All the songs on the Anyone Can Play Guitar podcast are by Radiohead and performed by Nick Kendallsberger and Austin Diaz. Mm-hmm.